By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks Focus on Finance. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Saranga Ranasinghe of the corporate finance team and Frank Morenzi of the banking team, who are both in Sydney, Australia, about Australia's pension sector, known there as the superannuation sector. We'll be looking at factors that are supporting growth in the pension sector, and by extension, the growth in the corporates it invests in and banks in which it parks large cash deposits and also some of the potential risks to that strong growth stemming from demographic trends. Later on, my co-host Carolyn Henson will be talking to Steve Tu about Apple's new Buy Now, Pay Later product and whether that signals a new phase in tech companies' forays into finance. Carolyn, hi, welcome back. Hi, Daniel. Good to see you again. So, Carolyn, what is Apple Pay Later and what does Steve have to say about it? Well, Apple Pay Later is Apple's own version of a BNPL product that is Buy Now, Pay Later. And that's something that specialist fintechs like Klarna in Europe or Affirm in the US have been offering for some time. And why does Steve see it as especially noteworthy? Well, it's not just a move into the Buy Now, Pay Later market. It's also a sign that Apple may be taking a whole new step moving beyond partnering with traditional banks and providers of credit, having them provide services for Apple customers, to actually assuming the credit risk itself. So it's established a new subsidiary, um, Apple Financing, along with this Apple Pay Later product. And this subsidiary is licensed to provide credit. And so for the first time, Apple will be able to conduct its own lending analytics and hold the credit risk in-house. I see. So, so you could say Apple is taking on core functions of banking in that sense. Well, exactly. Analyzing and taking on financial risks are activities that are really at the heart of the services banks provide. That is really interesting. And I am so looking forward to your discussion with Steve a bit later on. But first, I'm here with Saranga Ranasinghe of the corporates team and Frank Morenzi of the banking team both dialing in from Sydney to talk about Australia's pension industry, known again as the superannuation sector. Saranga, Frank, welcome. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having us. Hi, Daniel. Thanks. So you've both published a report about Australia's superannuation or pension sector and laid out some of its strengths and why it's likely headed for strong growth in the next few years. Saranga, how big an industry are we talking about and what are some of the main reasons for the strong growth projections? Sure. So Australia's superannuation sector currently stands at around three and a half trillion in AUD. Just to put this in perspective, uh, this is around 1.7 times the GDP of the country. And when you look at Australia relative to the rest of the world, on an absolute basis, we are the fifth largest, but we are a small country. We have only 25 million people. So on a per capita basis, we are stronger. And when you look at assets relative to the economy, we are the second largest, uh, only behind the Netherlands, actually. 
And the expectation is that the superannuation industry will keep growing. And there's a few factors driving this as well. So first and foremost, the superannuation guarantee rate will increase to 12% of gross income by 2025 from the current 10.5%. Um, this increase from 10% on the 1st of July 2022, uh, so just a couple of weeks ago. This is the percentage, the superannuation guarantee rate is the percentage of each employee's salary that an employer must pay into the system. And the second factor is the strong historical population growth uh, we've seen of between 1% to 2% annually. This is quite strong for a, for a developed country. And so an increase in population means an increase in working age people and therefore pension assets as well. Got it. So really a lot of key drivers of growth there that you just uh, enumerated. What does that mean for corporate credit? I would say the main support um, that is provided by this sector is the liquidity that is available because of the sheer size of the superannuation industry. We're talking about an industry that is 1.7 times the size of the economy. And there's large contributions that's flowing in every month, and this money needs to be invested somewhere. So these funds invest across equity and debt capital markets and are very supportive when listed companies raise equity. And we saw this during the global financial crisis and again during the pandemic as well. And again, they invest directly in real estate, infrastructure assets, and they also like defensive sectors like healthcare and retirement living. And these super funds tend to have long-term investment objectives, and they're also very conscientious of their reputation as well. So as a result, they become long-term providers of capital and are very supportive during downturns as well. And this was very evident during the pandemic. One example is the support these super funds provided the airport sector, which was one of the hardest hit during the pandemic. I see. So it sounds like that's really going to, you know, that's really a big boost to corporate credit there. What about banks? Frank, turning to you now, what's the effect on banks of strong growth in the pension sector? Well, Daniel, in a lot of ways, it's similar to what Sarang has already described, right? They, they buy the bank equity, they buy the bank bonds, but there is a key difference, right? Some of the sectors that Saranga talks about, like real estate and infrastructure, they're long-term assets, they're not very liquid. The super funds need liquidity, and that comes into the banking sector via a deposit. Um, the sector has about over $200 billion worth of deposits within the banking system. That represents about 10% of all deposits from Australians going into the banks. So that's a real support for the bank's funding profiles. Yeah, definitely. At 10%, I, I hadn't realized it was quite such a large chunk there. So definitely positive in that case for the banks. but. Your report also talks about some possible risks ahead to the growth story for the superannuation sector. Can you tell our listeners about that a little bit? What, what are some of those risks? Well, it's really a long-term risk, right? Australia is no different to a lot of other developed countries, right? We have an aging population. In some respects, we're a little bit better off. Our population isn't aging as fast. If you look at the OECD data, we're a little bit better than Great Britain, a bit better than the US, a bit better than the OECD average. That's a positive, but we are aging. And so as we age, 
people who've been putting money into their super funds eventually will retire and they'll need to draw on that money. So you'll have a greater proportion of outflows or an increasing amount of outflows. So that will mitigate some of the growth in the sector. So as the population ages, they'll obviously need to hold more liquid assets. In some respects, that's a positive for the banks. Um, that means the deposits will grow continually as well because only that liquid assets to pay out to people who are drawing down on their superannuation savings. I see. Interesting. Frank Saranga, thanks for that overview of the sector. And I would also direct listeners to the infographic that accompanies the series on superannuation in Australia. You can find the link in the show notes. And we're now joined by Carolyn Henson here to talk to Steve, too, about the bigger implications of Apple Pay Later. Thanks, Danielle. Steve, welcome. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, Steve, in June, Apple announced its intention to launch a buy now, pay later product called Apple Pay Later. But first of all, for all our benefit, could you just remind us exactly what a buy now, pay later product is? Yeah, sure, Carolyn. Um, so buy now, pay later, BNPL, it's, it's a credit product that's kind of like an installment loan. Uh, typically it doesn't have interest and people can use it in place of credit cards for retail purchases. And generally it's offered, you know, you don't need a full credit history to, to access a product like that. And the space has been growing quite fast and, you know, merchants like it because it leads to higher sales conversions and, and click through rates. Right. And you said that for Apple, this move could be more significant than simply offering a new service. So what is the main significance of Apple taking this step from your point of view? Yeah, so we we feel kind of lost in the headlines. You know, most of the media and the marketplace is focusing on the actual product of BNPL that Apple's getting involved in. Uh, But we, you know, taking a step back, what we see as more of an important development here is the potential change in financial manufacturing that this move could lead to. So, you know, this the way Apple Pay Later is being set up, it could be a possible extension of the company's strategy from previously partnering with banks and financial incumbents to provide financial services products to directly competing with them by actually becoming a manufacturer of financial products. And so with the whole setup of the, you know, the plans that they announced for Apple Pay Later, uh, Apple has established an entity called Apple Financing LLC. It's a subsidiary that's licensed to provide credit. And, you know, this will actually allow them to potentially make the shift into the direct manufacturing of financial products, which is typically, you know, the preserve of, of banks. And, um, you know, it does represent a deeper foray into financial services by tech firms if it takes this route. And this is one of the you know, the, the following one of the trends that we kind of talked about back in 2018 with, with the big tech uh, reports. So establishing Apple financing doesn't necessarily mean Apple will um, directly manufacture its own products, but it could do so. Uh, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, you know, there are lots of regulatory burdens, capital requirements, which would dissu- which have dissuaded many uh, entrants, you know, big tech companies and stuff into directly manufacturing financial products. Uh, that's totally true. But then again, you know, we would note also that earlier this year, Apple did buy a, a firm called Credit Kudos. It's a UK startup that you know does data analysis for credit and lending decisions. And now with the setting up of Apple financing as part of the, you know, this Apple Pay Later plan, uh, you know, you kind of have for the first time Apple, uh, you know, big tech company being in a position to conduct its own lending analytics and to warehouse the credit risk in-house. 
So as you mentioned, you know, at the beginning of the show, you know, the analysis, the shoulder and financial risks, these are activities that are at the heart of what a financial services provider, you know, i.e. a bank does. Right. So to date, Apple's history in financial services has really been just partnerships with established banks, right? So what is, can you give us a brief history of, of what Apple has done in financial services so far? Yeah. So on, on the retail side, uh, you know, they, they did a bunch of planning, but then, and then launched Apple Pay in 2015. Uh, that's a, um, you know, product that comes pre-installed on all iPhones within the wallet app. And Apple Pay allows you to upload your, you know, credit cards, debit cards, potentially, and also into the wallet, you know, other, other forms of ID, potentially. And you can use your smartphone to, uh, you know, contactlessly pay, uh, for transactions and then also, you know, move money around. And then as part of this in 2019, Apple partnered with Golden Sachs to launch the Apple card, you know, their, their first, you know, branded credit card. Uh, and that's, you know, uses the, the MasterCard, you know, global payment network. So you know, what we've seen is are these continual incremental steps to add more functionality with their fintech, you know, to add more value to the client and, and make this, the ecosystem more compelling. And other tech firms have partnered with banks too, haven't they? Yeah, um, you know, that's that's the most common step we've seen. You know, in the UK, TSB partnered with Square, you know, the the payments and point of sale service provider. Amazon uh, has partnered with Marcus, which is uh, you know, you know the you know, the fintech bank at Goldman Sachs for small business lending, and you know this is all kind of going back to regulations again because finance is so heavily regulated. You know, partnerships have been the preferred path so far, you know, especially in the U.S., and that's why this development has you know has a potential shift that we find very interesting and significant. So, Steve. Given there's a long track record of partnerships here, and you know that seems to work well for the tech firms, and I guess there's reciprocal advantage for the banks too in terms of broadening access to customers. So, what is the advantage actually for a tech firm to bring manufacturing of financial products in house? Yeah, so maybe you know we take a step back and kind of ask the question, why not? Right. So if you think about what is finance in in essence. It's an information-based activity that at its core, it's about, you know, supporting the real economy and, and all of our lifestyles. And it's about gathering data, making economic judgments on that data to model risk and reward. And then you, you know, service the client and, and bear risk. And so, you know, banks have been doing this for decades, you know, even, even hundreds, you know, centuries. And they definitely have a lot of strengths here. Um, but one thing to think about is as the world moves more digital, all of our, you know, a lot more of our lives, uh, commercial activity and stuff becomes more and more digital. And the data is all captured there and generated on these, you know, technology platforms and stuff. Um, you know, the tech companies really are at the, at the, at the edge where, you know, the data is being created, ingested. And then also, when you think about the analysis, you know, someone like Amazon is actually one of the largest private sector employers of economists in, in the world. And so as we move more and more digital, the tech companies have a lot more strengths here. Um, and then on top of that, you know, their reach, uh, you know, ability to really make user experiences very compelling and delivering value to clients. Getting to the tech companies themselves, what would you say are the advantages there? From the companies their perspectives, 
you know, the internal manufacturing of financial products. You know, there are definitely things that dissuade them, but there are also several advantages. So one, you know, it would lower the costs. They could capture additional fees, different fees as well. Uh, two, it could provide greater control over operations, speed, flexibility. All this allows them to kind of customize the user experience and make it even better. Um, and then three, they don't have to you know, share the financial data with, with other partners. So that data, in essence, becomes even a little bit more valuable. And then all this you can kind of think about is these are all things that uh, qualities that allow them to make the user experience more compelling. And, you know, their real goal is making the ecosystem more compelling, you know, having higher user engagement and loyalty. And all this is, you know, aligned with their, 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 you know, their missions. And so, you know, they're well positioned to leverage you know, into finance uh, because it's information based, given their massive user bases and, you know, ability to, to handle and, and work with data. Um, you know, th- there are downsides, uh, and, you know, the key ones which have held them back so far has been regulation, obviously. That's, you know, the biggest one. And then balance sheet usage, you know, capital requirements if you, if you get more involved into lending. And then the, you know, the complexity associated reputational risks that might arise from engaging in finance, particularly on a, on a retail level. But, you know, you, Kind of combine all that, you know, we still feel that, you know, further moves by big tech companies into finance over time, you know, still, still, you know, seem reasonable to us. Got it. Steve and Carolyn, thank you so much for your insights. And thank you also to Saranga and Frank. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to read any of the reports referenced in this episode, you can find those by clicking the link to the episode at about.moody's.io slash podcasts. And if you're listening to the show on a streaming service, please remember to follow or subscribe. And please tune in again for future episodes of Focus on Finance. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.